the most wonderful parts of our lives is the fact that we have families. And each of us have particular memories with regard to our family. And we enjoy our families. We enjoy being together. There are things that we like to do together. Now, that's not true about all families, is it? There are some families that can't stand each other. In years past, when I was working bivocationally, I worked for a contractor who had as clients some of the wealthiest people here in the Baltimore area. And I would work on projects in their homes. And although they were wealthy property owners, lacked nothing, many of them had some of the worst family lives. Their children couldn't stand each other, couldn't stand their parents, arguments and fights all the time. Solomon said that it's better to be poor and have peace in your family than to be wealthy and have conflict. As we open the Word of God tonight, we are going to be looking at the blessings of family as we continue our study here in John chapter 14. Now, Jesus is going to say some things here that are just simple statements, and yet they are pregnant with meaning. As we have said previously, the apostles are going to elaborate what Jesus has said, the foundation that he has laid. The Holy Spirit is going to inspire them and give them deeper understanding and more expansive application of the work of Jesus and what Jesus has set in motion through his death and his resurrection. So turn with me again to John chapter 14 and the passage that we are studying, verses 15 to 21. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Now we are going to look at what Jesus has said here in the middle of this passage. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Spirit of Truth, Jesus said, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And then he went on to say, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am am in you. Now specifically, we are going to be focused on this emphasis that Jesus is giving to his disciples in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The psalmist wrote that the Lord sets the solitary in families that he makes the barren woman the happy mother of children. 
There is nothing that is more tragic than being abandoned, being unwanted, being rejected. Jesus is declaring here, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you abandoned. I will not leave you lonely. I will come to you. Before we begin this Bible study, I want to give you just a couple of caveats. First of all, this is a Bible study. This will not be a devotional, although I do pray that out of this study, your hearts will be more fully devoted to Jesus Christ. This is not a word of encouragement tonight although I hope that you will be greatly encouraged in the Lord by the end of this Bible study. This is a Bible study. We are going to be looking at things that are significant and weighty in Scripture, things that are very, very important. I will be sharing with you a lot of references. We won't read them all. Many of them we will just make reference to without reading through them. But I do pray that after the podcast is posted with the notes, that you will take time to go back and study these passages. They are critical to understanding what it means to be part of the family of God, what it means to have eternal life, what it means to know the way to God, what sets apart the way of Christ from every other system of belief in this world. If you are going to defend your faith to those who are skeptical about Jesus Christ, who have a difference of perspective about him, who do not see him as the one and only way, there are truths in this Bible study tonight that you need to be able to articulate. And so I do pray that the Holy Spirit, who is at the heart of everything that we will speak of tonight, will open your minds and your understanding to the wonderful truths that we will look at in this study that we have entitled, The Blessing of Family. To his disciples, Jesus said, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father. What of this relationship where Jesus calls God his Father? What do we need to understand about it? In John chapter 17, Jesus is going to pray after he has shared these truths with his disciples. And early in his prayer, he will pray this. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In reading that statement, you and I understand that this relationship that Jesus had with God as his Father is something that predates time. It isn't something that began when Jesus came, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It is something that predates the history of the world. I would argue that the most profound teaching that Jesus presented was the concept of God as Father. Now, we have spoken of this before. And there are references in the Old Testament to God as Father and Israel as his Son. Yet this is not a central teaching of the Old Testament. And it was one that was unknown to the Jews. In fact, we have seen that their understanding of God was so exclusive that for someone like Jesus to say, that God is my Father, was to make them equal with God, that was blasphemy. 
When Jesus said it, they picked up stones to stone him. This understanding of God as Father was an understanding and an identity that Jesus possessed long before the crowds heard him. There in the Sermon on the Mount, speak of God as Father. When he was 12 years old and went up to Jerusalem, as a man now, at 12 years of age, he was required to go to Jerusalem at least three times a year to present himself before the Lord in the temple. Every Jewish man, 12 years old and older, were required to do so. When his parents could not find him after three days and they retraced their steps, they found him in the temple. And when his mother scolded him out of her anxiety and worry, his response was, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? I believe it's the King James that says, don't you know that I had to be about my father's business? So this concept of God as father was with Jesus from an early age. But it's not rooted in any sense of human relationship. But in a union, as we see from the words of Jesus here in John 17, that predated human history. Father, the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, many people talk about the family of humanity. And they will talk about God as the father of everyone. Jesus did not come to tout the fraternity of humanity. But he came to represent the relationship of the original, eternal family. John wrote in his prologue in verse 18, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made himself known. Now the Bidens are known as the first family of the United States. But the original first family was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The eternal family. And Jesus had come to represent that union to represent it because that image, remember, had been lost. Jesus said with reference to the Holy Spirit, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now, that's true not just in reference to the Holy Spirit, but because the Trinity is one. It applies across the board. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking with the Jews. Then they ask him, where is your father? And Jesus replied, you do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. This is interesting because now in the words of Jesus, he has declared that the world does not know his Father, the world does not know him, and the world does not know the Holy Spirit. So when you and I talk about what has been lost because of sin, and the broken family history that we have become part of, it is utterly extensive. We heard Jesus many times declare that he was the exclusive, authorized representative of God. 
He is, as we just read from John's prologue, the one and only Son, the only one who has ever seen God, the one in closest relationship with God, the one who has come to make God known. This was the mission of Jesus. He came to represent the Father, to speak the words of the Father, to be the visible representation, the visible image of God the Father. Apart from Jesus the Son, there can be no understanding of God as Father. Remember, Jesus is the one and only Son. He is the only begotten one. He is exclusively the Son. And so if you and I are going to know the Father, we need to know Jesus, the Son. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Now, the Jews claim legitimacy as children of Abraham. And that was part of their argument here in John chapter 8. But Jesus declared that the genetic alteration of our human nature by sin is so total and so irreversible that we cannot know God, we cannot please God, we cannot claim any identity with God. Listen to the words of Jesus here in John chapter 8 verses 33 and 34. I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Interesting words. And then in verse 44, Jesus said, You belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, Jesus has just spoken several things, several characteristics that identify the human race. Slaves of sin, anyone who sins, Jesus said, is a slave to sin. A lack of truthfulness, lying, violence and ill will in our hearts, hatred towards someone else. Remember Jesus said that in the eyes of God, having hatred in our hearts towards someone is as egregious in its sinfulness as is murdering. Obviously, the impact is far greater and far different. But it is as much a sin as hating someone. Jesus is letting us know that something happened to us. When sin entered this world, our natures were so corrupted Originally, we were made in the image of God. But that was so quickly lost. What do we see? So immediately after the fall of man, Adam and Eve had two sons. And Cain had violence in his heart, jealousy and hatred toward his brother. And he murdered his brother Abel. So quickly, the fullest manifestation of sin became apparent. Now, when Jesus is talking about lying, when he's talking about not holding to the truth, he's not simply speaking about you and I telling someone, knowingly telling someone something that is not true. 
For truth in Scripture also refers to the revelation of God. In fact, I would say that above everything else, it is a reference to the revelation of God because God is truth. He is light. And so it's any deviation at all, whether it is intentional or unintentional. When you and I act out of our own feelings, when we act out of impatience, when we speak a sharp word, when we gossip about someone, and even when you and I fail to see that that is the truth of what we are doing, and how we are acting. We are lying. It is misrepresenting the eternal truth of God. This is a deep, irreversible human condition that Jesus is referring to. We have been utterly and thoroughly changed by sin. And there is nothing that we can do about it. This would also be a teaching that would be emphasized by the apostles. The apostle Paul would emphasize it in Galatians chapters 1, 2, and 3 as he leads up to this emphasis. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory, the standard, the righteousness of God. All are under the judgment of God because all are sinful. Jesus said to his disciples this key sentence, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Remember that all of the great truths that Jesus would present throughout the Gospel of John are condensed in John's prologue. And John made this statement in verses 12 and 13. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now connect that statement with what Jesus has just said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. There are some significant truths that you and I need to understand. As Jesus told both the Jews and his disciples, he is the exclusive representative of God. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, I do not speak my own words, I speak the words of the Father. He is the sole means of relationship with the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, he is the only access to God, and he is our only validation with God the Father. Now, we have just heard Jesus, speak to the Jews. He delegitimized their claims. He invalidated their basis of legitimacy. They said, we are children of Abraham. We are legitimate because Abraham is our father. But Jesus invalidated that basis of legitimacy. And he said here in John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And with that statement, Jesus declared that the only basis of a legitimate relationship with God as Father was faith in the one who preceded Abraham. 
in existence. It was because of that statement, before Abraham was, I am, present tense, and a term that God had used to speak of his eternal existence when he commissioned Moses to go to Egypt as his representative. I am that I am. And now Jesus uses that term. He makes himself the only legitimate means of knowing the Father. And he said of Abraham, whom they claimed as their legitimacy, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 4, beginning with the first verse and all the way through verse 25, the final verse, speaks of Abraham. He speaks of Abraham being justified by faith. He speaks of the promise that was given to Abraham even before the sign and the seal of circumcision. He speaks of Abraham becoming the father of all who believe, not only those of the circumcision, the Jews, but also those of the uncircumcision, the Gentiles. Why? Because of faith in Jesus Christ. And so again, here is Jesus delegitimizing every other basis by which someone might claim a relationship with God. Even the highest one with whom God made covenant, the father of the Jews, was not the basis of their legitimacy. The only basis by which one can know God as Father, the only basis by which one can become a child of God, is through Jesus Christ. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. At the end of Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. The words, quote, it was credited to him, speaking of Abraham, were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now these words sum up everything that the Apostle Paul had said in Romans chapter 4 concerning Abraham. And he wanted his readers to understand that Abraham was justified not because of the works that he did, not because of his background and his history. He was justified by faith alone. He believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And the Apostle Paul told the Romans that those words, it was credited, not only are applicable to Abraham, but also to us. For when we believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, Jesus who was put to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification, when you and I believe in Jesus, God credits all that Jesus is to us as righteousness. Now, this is an important truth because remember, Jesus came as the exclusive representative of the Father. 
He came as the only way by which one could come to God and know him as Father. And the Apostle Paul emphasizes that he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. He came unto his own, his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to those who believed in him or believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. He came as our substitute. He came as our way to the Father. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he said to them in Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, So when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights as sons. Now, he's emphasizing the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, something that he has been very emphatic about in the previous chapters. For example, in the very familiar words of chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The substitutionary work of Jesus. He came in our place. He died in our place. He was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. So again, through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, number one, sin is atoned and we are reconciled to God. We just read here in Galatians that when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, his humanity, born under the law, in other words, he was subject to all the demands, all the requirements of the law. He laid aside his prerogatives as God. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. And then without any guilt, he died in our place on the cross. So that as the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19, God made peace, reconciling us through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. He paid our debt of sin. He was without debt, but as our substitute, he died in our place. And by his sacrifice, we are reconciled to God. Through the substitutionary work of Christ, our status changes from enemies to beloved children. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul said, We were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. There was hostility between God and us. We were under the wrath of God subject to judgment because of our sinful behavior. But the work of Jesus Christ on the cross changed that status. And in believing in Christ, John said in his prologue, he gave us the right to become the children of God. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. We are now 
the beloved children of God. The substitutionary work of Jesus Christ also means that we are born again by the Spirit. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus. I tell you that unless you are born again by the Spirit, you will not be able to enter the kingdom of God. We have spoken about the work of regeneration. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And being born again by the Spirit of God means that we have a recreated spiritual DNA. Now, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul speaks of this work that is done within us. We are in Christ. We are made spiritually alive. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit, and the Apostle Paul emphasizes, if anyone does not have the Spirit, they are not a child of God. But if the Spirit of Christ is in you, you are a child of God. If that same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he makes you, the Apostle Paul said, alive in your relationship with God. The Apostle Paul wrote again to the Colossians in chapter 2 and verse 11. We were dead in sins, but God made us alive in Christ through the circumcision that is not done with hands, but a circumcision of the heart. In chapter 3, in verse 10, he speaks of us receiving a new self, which is renewed in the knowledge of its Creator. Remember that when we sinned, our DNA was irreversibly altered. We gained a sinful nature. We lost a godly nature. But now the Spirit of Truth recreates us, renews us. And we now have the capability and understanding of knowing God. Renewed in the knowledge of the image of its Creator. A new understanding of what is right and what is wrong. A new understanding of the will of God. A desire to please God. To walk in relationship with Him. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it speaks of us having been made holy. The one who makes men holy. Remember, the death of Jesus Christ removes our sin. We are justified in the sight of God just as if we had never sinned. We are made holy. This is a truth that is not only emphasized here in Hebrews chapter 2, but also in Hebrews chapter 10. By one sacrifice he made holy those who are being made holy. In a very important passage in 1 John chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, the Apostle John speaks of the difference that has taken place within us. If we desire to keep on sinning, if we sin without a thought, without conviction, if we do not have these, a desire to walk in the light as He is in the light, if we keep on sinning, we've not truly been born of God. Because the one who is born of God has a different DNA. He doesn't want to remain like he is and who he was. He wants to be like Jesus, renewed in knowledge of his Creator. He wants to be Christ-like. 
He is filled with God's love. He wants to obey Christ's commands, and he wants to love others. We are made someone new. And then fourthly, through the substitutionary work of Christ, we are adopted into a spiritual and eternal father-child relationship. How beautiful. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He came into his own. His own received him not. But to those who believed, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now, another word for right is prerogative. With this father-child relationship come certain prerogatives. We don't enter that relationship through any other means except through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. The Jews could not claim a relationship with God as their father because they were descendants of Abraham. It went much deeper. There was a DNA within them that needed to be changed and could only be changed through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, opening the door for the Holy Spirit to regenerate and to make someone new in Christ. John would emphasize that this right to become the children of God was not something that was by human decision or will. It was not by your heritage or your background. It was a work of God. And it is a work of God himself. He chose us, Paul said to the Ephesians, to be adopted, to be made holy in Jesus Christ. It is through the work of Christ that we are given this right to become the children of God. Now, with this spiritual and eternal father-child relationship come certain prerogatives. Paul spoke of these prerogatives in Galatians chapter 4 and in Romans chapter 8 that we become heirs of God, that the Holy Spirit within us lets us know that we are God's children, causing us to say, Abba, Father, my Daddy, my dearest, dearest Daddy. The Holy Spirit gives us the heart of a child in relationship to the Father. We know God as Father. We know ourselves as His children. We feel the significance of that relationship. We draw near in love. In love we want to obey. In love we want to please. We want this relationship. And for us it is the highest of relationships. It also means that we are heirs of God. And as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. There is a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, and a work of adoption by which we become heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, the second prerogative that we gain is that of being parented by God. The writer to Hebrews emphasizes this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. He exhorts the Hebrews not to despise the discipline of God, because God disciplines those he loves. 
And if God loves you, he disciplines you. If God does not discipline you, then you are not a child of God. I have the deepest appreciation for the parenting of my father and my mother. It was through them that I learned Jesus. It was through them that I learned the Word of God. It was through them that I learned how to please God, how to live for God, how to live for eternity. It was through my dad that I learned the values of hard work. It was through my mother that I learned that you can clean anything with the power of elbow grease. It was through them that I learned the values that have made me who I am. It was their parenting. That parenting included discipline. Discipline that taught me. Discipline that prescribed boundaries. Discipline that trained me. I live out this relationship that I have with the body of Christ. Participating in the church. Let me use the words of Hebrews chapter 10. Do not give up meeting together. But do so all the more as you see the day approaching. It is because of the training of my parents that I live that out not just because it's my job. That is very secondary. If I were not a pastor, I would still want to be with the body of Christ in times of worship, participating in being taught, because my parents trained me in that relationship to the body of Christ and to the Lord. This is a prerogative that we have as children. God parents us. He disciplines us. And it reveals that we are his children. Now the writer to Hebrews went on to say, No discipline is pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Not all discipline is enjoyable discipline of teaching, guiding, counseling. Some of it is punitive and painful. But if we listen to what God is doing, if we allow it to affect us and to change us, the goal is to produce a harvest of righteousness in our lives. Something that will be of eternal value. Something that will truly make us like Jesus Christ. Something that will reveal that we are truly children of God. Jesus' words, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, would have an immediate fulfillment in just a few days when he would be resurrected. His disciples were feeling abandoned, lost, fearful, uncertain about the future. They were hiding, barricaded behind locked doors. Jesus entered the room where they were, and his words to them, peace, shalom, it is me. And so these words that Jesus has said to them, I will not leave you as orphans, would have that immediate fulfillment on the day of his resurrection. But his work, his work of death and resurrection, would achieve an eternal fulfillment of our adoption as children of his Father. And so when Jesus is speaking those words, it's not just to his disciples regarding a few days from now. 
It is reaching all the way to you and to me. Who through the exclusive substitutionary work of Jesus Christ find that a way has been made that no human way could provide for you and I to be adopted as the children of God with all the rights of being his children and God being our Father. Jesus said to his disciples, before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Now this second sentence, because I live, you also will live, reminds us of what Jesus said to Martha as they stood there before the tomb where her brother Lazarus had been buried. And Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha would respond, yes, I do. I believe that you are the Messiah, the one who has come from God. Now, she may not have understood every implication of what she was saying, but she was making a declaration that we have emphasized throughout this study that Jesus himself emphasized, that the only valid way of coming to God and the only valid way of experiencing the life that God gives is through Jesus Christ. Because I live, you will live also. When we were studying chapter 12, and we came to the end of it, we noted that Jesus would not appear again to the crowds. He was finished speaking to the crowds of people that would include those who believed and those who did not believe. After his resurrection, as Paul notes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus' appearances were limited to those who believed in him. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. That is how it would be after his death and resurrection. Jesus was going to the cross to become the source of life for all who would obey him. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. He would be resurrected, as Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, so that he might be the firstborn from among the dead and in everything have supremacy. And we emphasize this in our teaching this past Sunday morning. As we have seen in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 4, his death and resurrection provides our justification. Justification makes possible our adoption. And adoption means that we possess the present and eternal life of Christ. Hallelujah. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 1, and he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In chapter 3, he wrote, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Because I live, you also will live. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said to Martha, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. Perhaps we will die physically, but we will live. Why? Because Christ is my life, your life. The one who lives by believing in me. The one who is made spiritually alive. The one who is adopted into the family of God has my life. 
and he will never die. When Christ who is your life, your presence life, the life that makes you part of the family of God. The writer to Hebrews says, therefore he's not ashamed to call them brothers and part of his family. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You and I possess the present life of Christ, his righteous life, his holy life. We are justified through his life, his sinless life that he offered as a sacrificial payment for our sin. And we also possess his eternal life. The Apostle Paul said to the Philippians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our adoption means that we possess the present and the eternal life of Christ. Hallelujah. I pray that your heart is encouraged tonight. This doctrine of adoption you and I could miss it if we don't stop and think of what Jesus is saying. And yet, it is something that he has been emphasizing. Every time that he has spoken of believing in him, and every time that he has referenced God as Father, he has been extending to people the right to become the children of God. But he has also been emphasizing to them that there is only one way that it is possible, and that is through him. I pray tonight that your heart has been enriched. This teaching of adoption is so important. the privileges and the blessings of being in the family of God are eternal. And you and I can look forward not only in this life to experiencing the abundance of all that Christ has achieved for us, but throughout all of eternity, you and I are going to know the blessing of being the children of God, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Praise God. Now I want to ask you, why is it important that you and I understand this doctrine of adoption and this teaching that Jesus has presented to us, the way in which he has presented it? Why is it so important? Here's the bottom line. Every other belief system in the world delegitimizes Jesus as the only way to God and presents an alternative way. Remember that the Muslims have a high regard for Jesus. The Muslims honor Jesus as a prophet, but not as the Son of God. And Muhammad becomes the way, and following the words of Muhammad, believing the five things, doing the five works, gives you the opportunity to enter heaven. Also tells you that you will not really know until you see God on judgment day, and even then he might change his mind. But the fact is that every other religion emphasizes a, a way to God that in the words of Jesus is not legitimate.
And so the truth of what Jesus said about relationship with God, about his exclusiveness of how we become children of God, is important for you and I in becoming a child of God, but also important if we are going to present to other people the truth of who Jesus is and the only valid way of being accepted by God and experiencing adoption. Now, our world and our society here in the United States our Christian culture has come to the place of affirming things, lifestyles, relationships in God's that that you and I believe are utterly contrary to God's word. And yet a central argument of those Christians is that everyone is made in the image of God. And that everyone, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of the identity that they ascribe to themselves, are legitimate children of God, and God is their Father. But that is not what you and I have seen in God's Word tonight. It is not what Jesus has taught. Everything that represented the image of God in Adam and Eve was lost when they sinned. Their relationship with God was lost when they sinned. And it's only through Jesus that it can be restored. And it is only through God's work of adoption, not our self-identification. It is only through God's work of adoption through Jesus Christ that you and I come into the family of God. You might be surprised when you scan the websites of churches and what they believe to find that they believe what you believe. And then later on, as you dig a little deeper, to also find that they believe that everyone, regardless of how they live or how they identify themselves, are children of God. No regeneration, no acknowledgement of sin, just children of God. If that's the case, then the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ was for nothing. Well, Father, we thank you tonight for this study, and we thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for laying down your life as payment for our sin. Thank you for your work that has made it possible that if we believe on you, you give us the right to become children of God. You come to us. We are not left as orphans. We are adopted by your Father. Thank you. Thank you that we are given the full rights of being your children. Father, you make us co-heirs with your Son. How amazing, how incredible, how unbelievable. And that we share in his eternal life and eternal destiny. We thank you tonight. And we pray that we would live as your children. We pray that we would live as Jesus lived. We pray that 
We would want to be all that he is so that like him, we might honor you as our father. We pray your blessing upon everyone who has heard your words and will hear these words. May it bring us into a true and eternal relationship with you as our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.